Okay, so we heard from Pete about how we might uh, extend ourselves to other planets. We heard about uh, what, where we might discover life on Mars or some of the uh, outer moons, uh, perhaps with Kepler and, and ongoing um, satellites, we may be able to discover evidence of life, extrasolar life. Uh, but the kind of life that Pete was talking about uh, were equivalent to bacteria, right? Uh, nothing that's going to build a starship, nothing that's going to come visit us, nothing that's going to transmit information to us. So uh, now we're going to switch gears a little bit. Um, I'm really pleased to introduce uh, Seth Sostak, who is a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. Uh, Seth has written uh, four books, I think, now, uh, Confessions of an Alien Hunter. He successfully uh, parried uh, Stephen Colbert, and you can imagine being on Stephen Colbert and, and talking about E.T. Would, would, would be a difficult thing to do, <laughs> but uh, pulled it off uh, very nicely. So, um, so uh, let's give a warm welcome to my, to my good friend, uh, Seth Sostak, uh, Science Searches for Extraterrestrials. Thanks very much, Ann. I'm going to stand up because it gives you an opportunity to uh, throw things. Okay, I took about uh, looking for intelligent aliens, the kind that can hold up their side of the conversation, as opposed to the microbial ones. Um, and my function here is mostly to tell you a little bit about why we think they're out there, how we're looking, what it would mean to you, the car buyer, if we were to find ET. Is this thing working? Is there any audio here? Not that it really adds to the presentation, but I... Um, and then give you a chance, of course, to grill me like a cheese sandwich with all those questions you know I'm not answering. Uh, but it's mostly about ideas here. I'm just trying, trying to throw some ideas at you. So some of this will be speculative. A lot of it is speculative in the sense that we haven't found any intelligent life uh, beyond Earth. And some people would claim we haven't found any on Earth. It's uh, also the case that uh, it's a little uncertain whether we will in the foreseeable future or not. But I'm going to suggest to you that that might happen. All right, let me just uh, get to this. Let me just say a few things about why we think E.T. might be out there. How many of you do think that E.T. is out there, by the way? Well, I mean, why have this talk? Why don't we just go have lunch? Um, <laughs> how many of you think, no, probably not, actually. We, we may be the smartest things in the galaxy. Okay, well, you're the people I want to talk to later, because I, I want to know why you think that. If, if you were to grab the next 10 astronomers off the streets of Mountain View, not a really good idea, but if you were to do that, and ask them, do you think that uh, ET exists? I think most of them would say yes, nine out of 10 probably. And mostly that's a numbers game, but there are some, uh, which I'll get to, but there are some other bits of evidence. For example, this. This is a photo I made in uh, northwestern Australia a few years ago in the Pilbara Hills. And the Pilbara Hills have the, the, the best preserved sedimentary rock, old sedimentary rock on the planet. This rock, which has been dated you know, by radioactive dating, is about three and a half billion years old. And the error in that is a few percent. There are some older rocks around, places like Greenland, so forth, but they've sort of been churned up by tectonics, so they're not in such good condition. You can see those two round things in the middle of the photograph, uh, which look like sort of fossilized cantaloupes, and those are, in fact, the remains of stromatolites, which are just big bacterial colonies. The point is, there was life on Earth three and a half billion years ago. Okay, widespread life. You can just find it in the rock here. Okay, and the Earth is only four and a half billion years old. 
So what this is saying is that essentially as soon as the Earth could tolerate the existence of life, there was life. And that suggests, doesn't prove, it's only one example, but it does suggest that life is a pretty easy thing to get started. Right? Not hard to do. It didn't take billions of years to start life. So that sounds okay. Well, that's encouraging. If you have a planet that can support life, it may cook up life. The other premise is that there's a lot of real estate. This is just one of the many sky surveys of galaxies here. You just see some of the sky. Each one of the dots there is a galaxy. All right. The number of galaxies we can see with our telescopes is on the order of 100 billion. 100 billion. And each one of them has about 100 billion stars on that order. So that means that the number of stars in the part of the universe we can see is 10 to the 22. That's a big number. Did I just turn this off? Okay. Uh, here's another bit of the universe and so forth. Now, the number of planets, we don't know the number of planets, okay? 10 to the 11th galaxies, each with 10 to the 11th stars. But Pete Warden has already told you that most stars have planets. And indeed, when I asked Jeff Marcy, who is a Bay Area astronomer over at Berkeley, who hunts for planets, he's, he's found more planets than any other hominid uh, has, has found. I asked him, you know, Jeff, you found a couple of hundred planets by looking at the wobbles of stars. If you had perfect instruments, what fraction of stars do you think would show planets? And he said, oh, well, maybe a half or three quarters. And that, you know, a half to an astronomer is the same as all. Right? There's no difference there. In fact, for astronomy, pi is equal to one. So that, that's pretty good because that means the number of planets is more like 10 to the 23 because planets are like kittens. You don't get just one. You get a litter. Right. So 10 to the 23 is comparable to the number of grains of sand on all the beaches of the earth. Right. So the, for the five or six of you who think, you know what? There are as many planets as there are grains of sand on all the beaches of the earth within our purview. I mean, there are presumably many, many more, but those are the ones we could conceivably see with a telescope. Um, this is the only interesting one. This is the only one where something interesting is happening. You have to admire those people because they believe in miracles. They believe in miracles. The miracle would not be if E.T. is out there. The miracle is if E.T. is not out there because that makes you very, very special. And I know you're here at Singularity University, and you like to think you're special. <laughs> Humans always like to think they're special. But if you do astronomy for a while, you, know, you come to the conclusion that every time you believed in a miracle, you were wrong. Right? You, you don't get many papers accepted in the astrophysical journal base. And this happened via a miracle of their cartoons. Okay. So here was, here was, uh, the, here's Jeff Marcy, and, and the way he finds planets is to look for the wobble of stars. And that's been a very effective technique for the last 16 or 17 years. But in fact, as you've heard, Kepler has made all this uh, somewhat archaic in some ways. All right, this, this is the bottom line on that number. But here's Kepler. This is the Kepler mission. And Peter already told you what Kepler does. It finds planets by looking for the dimming of stars when a planet goes in front of it. Very simple mission, the Kepler mission, which is one of the most interesting science experiments going on these days. And a lot of it is run right, right out of Ames here and also out of the SETI Institute, which is across 101, about a mile and a half from here. Kepler is just staring at 150,000 stars for four years. It's the ultimate staring experiment. Right? And it just looks for slight dimmings of those stars, the ones that happen to be aligned correctly and that have planets. 
From that dimming, you can get all sorts of information. You can get the information about how big the planet is. You can tell its orbit and so forth. So you can tell whether it could, in fact, potentially be habitable if the temperatures on that planet are the right range to possibly support liquid oceans and atmospheres. So the bottom line with Kepler is still, this is what uh, they've done so far in terms of Earth-like worlds. This is already out of date, actually. But what this means is that a few percent of all stars probably have planets that are habitable. Right? Maybe 1% of them have planets that are cousins of the Earth. Now, 1% doesn't sound like a lot, but 1% in a galaxy of a few hundred billion stars is obviously a few billion Earth-like worlds. A few billion. Right? That's a big number, and that's our galaxy. If for some reason you have moral objections to our galaxy, there are plenty of other galaxies. Okay? So there you go, 10 billion Earths in the Milky Way. That's the order of magnitude. Maybe it's 1 billion, maybe it's 50 billion, but it's, you know, it's not three. Okay. Now, let me just say a little bit about uh, why I think it's important to consider what the aliens might be like if you're going to look for them. Uh, if you talk to my colleagues and ask them, you know, well, what do you think E.T. would be like? And they say, we don't care, and we don't know. Because it doesn't matter. We're just looking for the evidence. We're looking for radio signals that might be coming from E.T. We're looking for, you know, some sort of indication that they're there. That's what interests us. What they look like doesn't interest us. Okay. All right, well, I think it does matter what they look like, actually. And here's, here's the proof. This is Percival Lowell, uh, a photo made about 1900. And Percival Lowell was a, this Boston, he was born into a Boston Brahmin family. He was a very clever guy. Uh, he went to Harvard. He was said to be the, the brightest student that Harvard ever had. But then again, it was only Harvard, so maybe it doesn't count much. Uh, he was, he, was inter- he studied mathematics. He was interested in astronomy, but... Uh, because the money, the money his family had made it easy for him to do whatever he wanted to do, he elected not to try and get a tenure-track position at a fourth-rate university. He just built his own observatory, which he modestly named the Lowell Observatory, down in Flagstaff, Arizona. And here he is at work uh, looking at Mars through an 8-inch refractor. Of course, in those days, in 1900, you would put on a suit and a tie to spend uh, all night in a dark dome looking at Mars. I have to say his wife, who was considerably younger than he was, didn't find this all, interest, uh, all that interesting. She stayed back in Boston. We don't have photos of what she was doing in the evening, but presumably it wasn't this. In any case, so there's Lowell. Now, Lowell thought he saw canals crisscrossing the surface of our little ruddy buddy. And he was a very good writer, in addition to being good at everything else. He wrote several books on this that convinced the public that there was this vast hydraulic civilization on Mars. Uh, He gave lectures. He was a good speaker, uh, also convincing the public. The public was convinced. The astronomical community was not so convinced because there were people who had bigger telescopes right nearby here, right on Mount Hamilton. The Lick Observatory had a bigger telescope than this, and they couldn't see the canals on Mars. Uh, Lowell's explanation for that was to say that, uh, well, your problem is you're not in Flagstaff, Arizona, where the atmosphere is more stable. You can see these things. So he convinced the public, aliens nearby. Here's some of his handiwork. You can see... Uh, a bit of Mars there with all these straight lines. He, he catalogued something like 400 canals. And he also explained why the, the uh, Martians were so keen to engage in these shovel-ready projects. And the answer was that Mars was drying out. It was a dying, drying planet. And they needed the canals to bring water from the polar regions down to the equatorial regions where they would grow their Brussels sprouts or whatever. Here's a... Uh, modern photo of the same area of Mars, and you can see that the large gray areas match up pretty well. 
The canals are not there. Okay. Uh, this, this was uh, later research showed that this was probably an optical illusion in the, in the brain. Here was a contemporary astronomy textbook showing what it probably looked like on the surface of Mars. So it looks like Venice, California, actually, without the cheesy architecture. Okay. Now, the, the facts are that, oh, here's another. <laughs> this is from 1908. This is the illustration of the Martians at a cocktail party. You, you, can, you, you notice that they're very anthropomorphic. They look like us. Right? And in Hollywood movies, they almost always look like us, too. You can excuse the movies because if they didn't look like us, you couldn't read them. You couldn't decide, is this guy, you know, hostile or is he friendly or whatever. If he looked like a, you know, a bicycle or something like that, you wouldn't be able to read them. But if they look like us, then you can. You'll, you'll notice that the females here have longer eyelashes and wear bows in their hair. Sure makes sense. Anyhow, well, this is, I, th I think this is maybe interesting. I don't know. There was an experiment by a fellow by the name of Edward Maunder in Britain uh, in the early part of the 20th century to figure out why people believed in these canals. What he did is he made sketches of a sort of a pseudo-Mars, such as you see on the left. That was one of his sketches. And he went to a local school where there were 11-year-old schoolboys in London, and he would put these drawings up at the front of the class, and he would have the schoolboys just draw what they could see. And, 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 and the boys in the front of the class would do fairly accurate renditions of whatever the sketch was. The ones in the back, it was just a blurry representation of the same, not surprising. But at some distance from the front of the room, they would connect the dots. They would draw straight lines connecting things. Your brain and your retina are set up to recognize the outlines of things. That helps you to catch dinner, okay? So, you know, he, he suggested that that was the reason that, uh, that Lowell had connected the dots on Mars. All right, well, finally, in the 1970s, we've, we sent spacecraft that landed on Mars, the Viking landers. There had been, at this point, about 100 years of optimistic speculation about life on Mars. And most of you were not around when these photos were made, but there was a lot of excitement because when the shutters opened on these landers, nobody knew what they were going to see. Nobody had seen the surface of Mars. These are very familiar to you now, but they weren't at the time, obviously. And, you know, the, the, the assumption was there was going to be some sort of primitive vegetation at least, and at best there might be little green guys waving back at the camera. Okay. And this is what they found. And, and these pictures didn't change either. They made pictures like this every day for months, and the, and, and the pictures, the view never changes. It's like the, you know, the old joke, if you're not the lead dog, the view never changes. Okay, well, the view was not changing. You have to think, one guy got it. You have to, you know... The picture wasn't changing. Try that in your backyard. Set up a camera and take a picture every day. The view will change. The grass will grow, a bug will go by, maybe a dog will wander, and something will happen, particularly if you do it for months, but not on Mars. A little bit of frost occasionally. Things didn't change. So it looked like it's dead, Jim. There was no life on the surface of Mars. And this was very disappointing, actually. Now, this, it, that's all still somewhat controversial. There are people involved with the Viking biology project who who maintained that there was some evidence, some of these experiments, that there was biology. But most concluded it was dead. Now, one of the, one of the members of that team, Norm Horowitz, down at Caltech, actually, tried to assuage the public by saying, well, look, there could be life on Mars that looks like rocks. So. Okay, as it turns out. Now, that was disappointing, but as it, as it is, and as we heard from Pete, uh, that that situation is now not so somber. 
this is just a couple of uh, orbital photos made of a crater wall on Mars. The one on the left was made a few years earlier than the one on the right. And you see that white streak there, which is apparently some sort of liquid oozing out the sidewall of the crater running down the surface. I mean, you don't know what that could be. It could be hair cream. It could be anything, right? <laughs> Whoops. But, you know, most likely that's water. That's a result of water. So my point is this. In 1900, if you wanted to find life in the solar system, particularly on Mars, you built an observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona with a small telescope and looked through it. Sure to wear a tie. Okay, that's the way you would do it in 1900. Today, if you're contemplating looking for life on Mars, you have to send Bruce Willis to Mars with a bunch of roughnecks and have them drill down a couple of hundred meters till you find that liquid aquifer that we think might be below the surface, pull up that muck, look at it under a microscope, and then you'll find the Martians. That makes sense, by the way. If you were to drill a hole outside this building a mile deep, for that matter, two miles deep, and pull up that muck and look at it under a microscope, you'll, sing, you'll, you'll find life. Okay, there's, there's life very deep here on the Earth, so why not on Mars? So how we envision the aliens makes a difference in terms of our strategies for finding them. Okay, what about intelligent life? Uh, let me just say, first off, that when it comes to intelligent life, while most of the public is optimistic that it exists, a lot of the public figures we don't have to look very far to find it. Surveys that have been made in the United States, in Canada, in the UK, in Australia, New Zealand, for that matter, most of Western Europe, at least, uh, where they, these surveys have been made, show that approximately one-third of the public believes that the aliens are not only out there, but they're here, buzzing the countryside and occasionally hauling you out of your bedroom for experiments your mom wouldn't approve of. Okay, uh, I don't know how many of you believe that, but if you're typical, it'll be like one-third of you believe this is true, too. And if you listen to late-night radio, you hear about it all the time. I don't, personally, I don't think this is true. I won't say much about it, but if it were true, it would be absolutely the most interesting story in the world, wouldn't it? And you'd have thousands and thousands of academics beavering away on this problem, which they're not in general. Um, they're here. This is, a, this is the result of a survey that was made, uh, I think, in 2002 by CNN Time. But let me just read you a couple of these questions. Do you think a UFO crash landed in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947? 65% of Americans say yes, right? Did this spacecraft came, who knows, how many hundreds of light years just to have some Tex-Mex cuisine or whatever in New Mexico, and then 50 feet above the New Mexico desert, they lose control of their spacecraft and crash into the dirt. That would be like you driving across the country and then totaling your car on the garage door. I mean, it could happen, but it seems a little unre unrealistic. Second question, is the U.S. government hiding the fact that it knows of the existence of aliens? 80% of Americans say yes, which is incredible to me. This is the same government that runs the Postal Service. Right? They're the same government that nobody trusts, but somehow for more than 60 years they've kept the, the fact that we're being visited by aliens secret. Now, even if you like to believe that, and Americans love to believe in conspiracy from their government, and for their part the government occasionally does keep secrets just to keep everybody interested, uh, if you believe that, do you also believe that the Bulgarians and the Bolivians and the Brazilians and the Belgians and the, you know, the Botswanans and so forth, that they're all keeping this secret too? Or do the aliens only like to visit America? Right? So there's your choice. I mean, I can, I can hardly imagine that everybody's keeping this quiet. But do we have a... <laughs> yes. 
but so do you. So there you go. All right. Anyhow, all right, you're getting down a little bit skeptical. Here's, I'll make one final argument here, this, just to get you to think about this. Uh, there is the question, if, if we're being visited now, why now? Why now? Right? Why did, why, did they, why did they decide to visit Earth just in time to improve your social life? Right? Uh, and if you talk to people who make the claim that they are visiting, they will say, because the extraterrestrials are concerned about the Earth. They're concerned about what we're doing to the environment. Or we're, they're concerned because we have you know, uh, nuclear weapons or whatever. They're, they're concerned about our behavior. Well, to begin with, that's kind of self-centered. Right? I mean, I, I, you know, I don't go in the backyard and separate the ants. Right? You guys have been warring here for, for, for years, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Right? I just <laughs> have absolutely no interest in doing that. Um, so, I mean, it, it makes a big assumption about alien sociology. And the facts are that you know, our data set, data set for alien sociology is sparse. So we don't really know that. But even if you want to believe that they would be interested, it doesn't make any sense because they don't know about it. They don't know about it. Uh, here's I Love Lucy. We've been broadcasting the presence of Homo sapiens into space since the Second World War via high-frequency, high-power transmissions, FM radio, television, radar, right? Okay, so we've been, we've been making our presence known, uh, but it's only since the Second World War. So the farthest signals are out, you know, 60, 70 light years, something like that, right? Now, the aliens can't be more than half that distance to have picked up, I Love Lucy, some early show, decided they don't like the jokes, get into their spacecraft, which, after all, can't go faster than the speed of light, and then come to Earth to you know, interfere with your gusto-grabbing lifestyle. Well, the number of star systems that are within half that distance, say 30, 35 light years, is only a few thousand. So the bottom line is this. That's a very small number. It's a pretty safe bet that no aliens know of the existence of Homo sapiens. They just don't know that we're here. They might know that there's life on Earth. In fact, they, they probably will if they have some decent astronomical facilities because they can look at our planet and see the oxygen in the atmosphere. Right? That oxygen is something of the last two billion years, and it's due to photosynthesis. Right? I, I don't know if they would send spacecraft to you know, abduct plants for breeding experiments, but the facts are they would know about the plants, but they wouldn't know about you. They wouldn't know about you. They, they might also find the methane in our atmosphere and say, oh, you know, because that's been there for a long time too. And methane could be just bacteria, a lot of it is, uh, but it could also be um, due to what's politely called bovine flatulence or porcine flatulence, right? Cows and pigs. So, you know, the aliens could find pigs in space. You could do that. They might know that we, in fact, have uh, such critters, but I don't know that that would motivate them to come here. So when people tell you that they're here, you, you do, I think you have to ask, why is it that we're so special in time that they're here now? Because they don't know about you. Okay, let me get back to uh, some of the issues for SETI. Um, intelligence. P. Warden has told you that, you know, there might be life on Mars. It's uh, certainly one of the missions of the space agencies to go look for it. One of the most important ones, one of the ones that actually drives public interest in space. But there are six other worlds beside Mars in our solar system that might be suitable for life, that might have liquid oceans, Right? I mean, there are three moons of Jupiter that probably have lots of water, more water than you find on the Earth each moon, okay? Uh, there are two moons of Saturn that are looking encouraging for life. Titan was already mentioned. 
probably not liquid water, but there may be liquid ethane. There is. There are lakes of liquid ethane and methane, you know, liquid natural gas. And, you know, that's maybe not the kind of lake you'd want in your backyard, particularly if you're a smoker, you know, bam. But, but the thing is that, that that's a lot of hydrocarbon chemistry. Okay. So, you know, finding life nearby might be easy, but what about intelligent life? There's no intelligent life in the solar system except on this planet. What do we mean by intelligence? In the SETI biz, that's really easy, easily answered. We have an operational definition. If you can build a radio transmitter so we can pick up your signal, you're intelligent. That's it. So ask the person sitting behind you, hey, can you build a radio transmitter? And you'll know how to treat them the rest of the summer. Um, you see this? I always show this picture. I, I like this picture. Here, here's a guy, right? Uh, you know, 30,000 years ago, the, the question is, if I give you a lot of worlds with life, will many of them cook up something like this? Is clearly intelligent. He's adding some RAM to his computer there. That 30,000 years after this photo was made is building radio transmitters. And that's a very controversial question for which the evolutionary biologists fall into several camps. Uh, a lot of them say, yes, eventually you will get intelligence. It just has, you know, there, there's, there's an advantage to having a critter that's intelligent. There's an ecological niche for higher IQ. And then there are evolutionary biologists who say, no, 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 wait a minute. You're the consequence of a lot of happenstance, a lot of a contingency, a lot of luck, really. Already been mentioned today, 65 million years ago, the dinos and, you know, two-thirds of all the other land-dwelling species were wiped out by a rock from space. And if that asteroid had arrived, you know, a few hours earlier, it would have missed the Earth, and you wouldn't be sitting through this. There would be dinosaurs in Mountain View. Okay. <laughs> People in Sunnyvale think there still are dinosaurs in Mountain View. But, okay. All right. So this is an important question. It boils down to this. If, if I give you a million worlds with life, what fraction of them will ever cook up intelligence? And we don't know the answer to that question. But here's a, a bit of evidence, sort of an indirect bit of evidence. This is from Lori Marino, who's a uh, biologist at Emory University in Atlanta. And what she's done here is plotted. They say every time you show a plot, by the way, you lose 10% of the audience. But I, have, I have 12. So, okay. Uh, let, let me point it out here. What's plotted here, this is 50 million years ago. That's today. These colored areas are the IQs of, you know, dolphins and their relatives, fundamentally. So this is stupid over here, and it's smart on the right-hand side, okay? <laughs> now, you might, well, you might wonder how Laurie Marino gets the IQs of dolphins that were dead 50 million years ago. And the answer is they found all these old SAT scores. Actually, the, what she does is... No one ever applauded that joke before. <laughs> All she does is she, she measures the volume of their brains and compares it to the volume of their bodies. This is called the uh, encephalization quotient because it makes it sound better if it's you know, somehow Greek. But in fact... Uh, all it is is just saying if you have a bigger brain relative to your body, you're probably smarter. And that seems to be true when they you know, look at temporary animals. Anyhow, uh, so 50 million years ago, the dolphins were pretty stupid. Then they developed echolocation. They got a little bit smarter. And then you know, some of them got sort of stupid again because you don't want to be too smart for your environment. right? <laughs> I, I walk around my neighborhood, and I can see that that's true. So you don't want to be too smart for your environment. <laughs> But, you know, some of them got pretty smart. And, in fact, two million years ago, the smartest thing on this planet was a dolphin, a white, white flank dolphin. Okay, but the point here is that the dolphins are not that closely related to you, right? And, and yet, they were getting smarter. 
And you can do this for some other species as well. So the point is that nature seems to have developed intelligence in not just one species. We're not so exceptional. We've won this race. We're smarter than all the others. But, you know, if you've got possums in your yard, you can see that if somehow we wiped out all the humans tomorrow, you can imagine that the possums might take over given another, you know, 20 million years of evolutionary development. Okay, they're, they're pretty clever as it is. So this suggests that intelligence might not be so rare. The bottom line here, you know, we can sit here and speculate, which is what I'm doing, but we haven't found anything, I think, to quote the last president. We haven't found any life dead or alive beyond the Earth yet. Um, what would be the clues? Assuming that they are out there, assuming this makes sense to expect there might be something out there, how could we find them? One thing we could do is look for artifacts. This is one of the Apollo photos that NASA never released, figuring you wouldn't be interested. Actually, clearly, I made this in Photoshop, but this is not so crazy, right? The moon doesn't have much in the way of weather. So if somebody visited this solar system a billion years ago and looked at the Earth and said, well, it's all bacteria now, but who knows? Maybe something interesting will be here. So we'll leave this monolith here with instructions about how to join our book club in case anybody ever you know, shows up. You could do this. There's no money to go look for these things. But this does make sense. There are places in, for example, the Earth-Moon system, the so-called Lagrange points, where you could just put you know, greeting cards, whatever, and leave them there, and they would stay there for a very long time. Okay. So, so maybe this has been done. Maybe we should look for artifacts. So if not around our own planet, look around other stars, and maybe you would see things like you know, ring worlds, whatever, or, or uh, Dyson swarms, you know, really advanced societies that are interested in improving their gusto-grabbing lifestyles by getting lots of energy and just putting up solar cells that completely surround their home star and beaming the energy back to their home planet or wherever they live in that solar system. Uh, this, is, this is not a crazy idea for a society that might be, you know, a million years ahead of us or less than that even, okay? And keep in mind, the universe is three times as old as the Earth, so there's been plenty of time for uh, societies to do this. So why not look for these sorts of things? Because they do have signatures that you could find with the kind of telescopes we have today. There are some people who do this. Very few people do this. Maybe two or three have done something like this that I know about. So there's a whole project for you. Um, and the other way, of course, to find ET is to do what Jodie Foster did in the movie Contact. Any of you see that? It's, you know, it's been like 13, 14 years. Yeah. I was an advisor for the film. It was really very interesting. They, Warner Brothers would call up every day with another question. Like one day they called up and they said, so Seth, what does it look like when you fly through a wormhole? <laughs> well, two weeks ago, I'll tell you what it looked like. You know. All right. Anyhow, uh, so listening for ET on the radio, that's what we do. This was based on our institute, in fact, this, this idea. There's the very large array behind Jody there, which has never been used for this, by the way, but it is photogenic. Uh, the idea of doing this is an old one now. It was proposed by a couple of physicists who were then at uh, Cornell University in 1959. And in 1960, a guy who didn't even know about these guys writing this paper by the name of Frank Drake, here's Frank, I use this antenna. This is a photo I made of this antenna last week, actually, in West Virginia. I was in West Virginia. And uh, it's just a small thing. It's 85 feet in diameter, which by contemporary standards is a pretty small antenna. He pointed at a couple of nearby stars, hoping to pick up signals coming from ET. Uh, he didn't hear anything. That's not really true. He actually did hear something, but it turned out to be the U.S. Air Force, which did not count as extraterrestrial intelligence. Okay, but that idea that you could actually send bits of information between the stars was kind of a new idea. Right? People talked about it in terms of the Martians 100 years before, but the idea that, you know, you could cover light years of distance with this communication link only occurred in 1959, and by 1960, people were saying, let's try and look. I mean, 
it, it may surprise you, but here we are 100 years after Marconi, and it, we can easily build transmitters and receivers that could send bits of information, real Wi-Fi, over light years distance. Right? The, the, the power of radio is rather remarkable that we could do that. And it, it turns out we can also do this in the optical. If you take the, busy, uh, the biggest lasers that we've built, and they're, they're over here at Lawrence Livermore Labs. Uh, where are they? They're, they're over, uh, yeah, in Livermore. In Livermore. The big lasers, they're being used for nuclear fusion experiments. But if you were to take that big laser out there, right, and aim it at a mirror that's, you know, the size of this stage, and aim that beam at a star system 100 light years away, it would outshine the sun for a billionth of a second, right, seen from where they are. So you could send bits of information that way with a pulsed laser. So we, we also look for flashing lights in the sky. That makes sense. It's a crazy idea, but it makes sense. Okay, uh, this is the way we actually look for ET today. This is a photo made down at the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. If you haven't seen that, by the way, you should go to Puerto Rico and take a look at it. Uh, it's the world's largest antenna. It's 1,000 feet in diameter. And, you know, in the movies, Jodie Foster is wearing a pair of earphones listening for ET. Obviously, we don't do that. It's really boring, and you can't go on coffee break. And beside that, we typically monitor 100 million channels at once. In fact, I told, I told Warner Brothers that. I said, to make this realistic, you have to put 28 million pairs of earphones on Jody. And you know, they said, we're not going to do it. It'll crowd the shot. But, so th this is the way it is. It's, uh, you know, we use computers to do the listening. And it's actually very boring because you know, there's nothing for the human to do except reboot the software if it fails. So most of the time, I was making self-portraits like this. Okay. What kind of signals are we looking for? Uh, people ask that question because they figure, well, how will you know that it's ET that you picked up, right? Will, will it be the value of pi? Will they send us the value of pi? I learned the value of pi when I was you know, 11 years old or something. I, I was kind of disappointed. You finally hear the aliens and they tell you something you learned when you were 11 years old. Right? Or maybe the, you know, the Fibonacci series if you're a Dan Brown fan or something. No, we're, we're just looking for narrow band signals like those spiky things. Signals that are at one spot on the dial. And if you think about it, those are the kinds of signals that transmitters make, but nature does not. Quasars, pulsars, they all make radio noise. A lot of, Jupiter makes a lot of radio noise, but it's not at one spot on the dial. Right, think of it. You're driving around in your car, you know, trying to pick up that local country and western station or whatever it is you listen to. And, you know, there's a, there's a thunderstorm going on, right? And if you just turn the dial, you'll hear, you know, just mostly static everywhere. And then, you know, when you get close to a station, of course, your radios don't have dials anymore, but anyhow, you get close to a station, you hear, and then you get the station. It's at one spot on the dial. Whereas if a lightning bolt goes off, a lightning bolt makes obvious, obviously makes light, but it also makes radio waves, and you'll hear a crackle. But you'll hear that crackle no matter where you're tuned on the dial. It's broadband. Nature's not great at making signals. So... There you go. Any signal that looked like those spikes is the kind of thing we're looking for. We don't care what they're saying. Well, we do care what they're saying, but we're not going to be able to figure that out in the beginning. We're not going to be able to get the bits. We just get the fact that there's a carrier that they're on the air, and that's what we look for. Okay, uh, let me point out to you the explanation for, uh, in my mind, the explanation for the fact that we haven't heard this yet. We haven't picked up any signals yet. You know, at cocktail parties, if I dare to tell people what I do for a living, usually I don't. I tell them I'm in transmission repair. But if, if, if they actually find out what I do for a living, and they say, well, have you heard anything? That's their first question. Have you heard anything yet? Which I find a very peculiar question. Because obviously, if we had heard something, I wouldn't be at that party. Right? 
I'd be, <laughs> I'd be in Stockholm collecting a big check and having dinner with a king or something, right? Now, why is it that we haven't heard anything? I think that the answer is very simple. We barely scratched the surface in terms of our reconnaissance. Okay, uh, this is part of the Arecibo Observatory. This is what it looks like, the, the big dish. It's 1,000 feet across, 300 meters. Uh, holds 4 billion scoops of Baskin Robbins. Not a good idea in the tropics, but anyway. Anyway, the, the, the bottom line is we've only looked at fewer than 1,000 star systems carefully. That's the total reconnaissance that's been done over a wide range of frequencies. Now, that's a very small number. In a galaxy of a few hundred billion star systems, we've looked at fewer than 1,000 stars carefully. So if we had found ET, that would have been pretty remarkable, right? And I think that that explains the so-called eerie silence, why we haven't heard ET so far. We just haven't looked enough, right? Um, so when will we hear them? Well, here's Frank again. Frank is Frank's 81 now, actually. He comes into the office every day. He still works. Uh, he comes in, he writes this equation on the board. We don't know what it means, but there it is. Um, and Frank gets asked this question, as we all do. All right, you've been at it for a long time now. My mom even asks, so Seth, when are you going to get a real job? She asks that. <laughs> when is this going to happen? Is this going to take thousands of years? Is this like building maybe the cathedrals of Europe in the Middle Ages where, you know, one generation starts the cathedral and, you know, five or eight generations later they sort of finish it, Right? Is this that long-term a project? Now, Frank, I noticed in the 1990s when I first started listening to his answers to this question, he said, we'll find them within 10 years. And he was still saying that 10 years later. Uh, I think he would still say it today. Is there, but that's just his estimate, which is a euphemism for a guess. So could we do any better? Let me suggest how we might do better. To begin with, we've been building different kinds of instruments to do the search, including this one. This is the Allen Telescope Array. This has been in the news recently because... We don't have the funding now to keep it operating. That's a real problem. We're trying to solve it. This array is up in uh, Northern California, about 320 miles, 500 kilometers from where you're sitting, up in the Cascade Mountains. You can go visit it if you want. It's a beautiful area. Up in the mountains, and it's up there not because of the scenery or anything, but uh, obviously that's a place where there's not very much radio interference to interfere with the search. But now, there are 42 of these antennas. Uh, they're about six meters in diameter. And they can greatly speed up the search. The bottom line, I could go through all the technical, uh, technical specifications of this thing, but the real bottom line of why you build this is because you can use it 24-7 for your work. Up until now, SETI enterprises have always used somebody else's antenna. So that's trying, you know, it's like trying to do cancer research, but always having to borrow the microscope. It's slow. This speeds things up. Here it is from the air, 42 of these antennas. The idea is to build several hundred, okay? But it does speed things up, and I'm not going to show this video. How, how quickly is it speeding things up? Well, what I've done here is I've plotted some metric, some indication of how fast our search for ET has been conducted since 1960 when Frank Drake did that first experiment. So the black dots give you some idea of the increase in speed of the search. It isn't the same every year, right? And those three of you who are still conscious may notice from the left-hand side here that this is a semi-log plot, okay? So, in fact, the speed is going up exponentially, right? Well, enter Ray Kurzweil. Here's, you know, Moore's Law plotted against these data. And you see it follows Moore's Law right? because a lot of this is just digital electronics. The speed of the search doubles on average every 18 months, okay? And that will continue, I mean, you look at what technology is being used. That will continue. So 
if you look at SETI as the problem of finding maybe needles in a haystack, and you want to know when are you going to hit that first needle, what do you need to know? You need to know how big the haystack is. Well, we know that. It's a galaxy. We're looking in the galaxy. Secondly, you need to know how fast you're going through the hay. Are you using a teaspoon or using a skip loader? Right? Well, that's Moore's Law. That tells you how fast you're going through the hay. And the third thing you need to know is how many needles are in there. What's the density of needles? And we don't know that. But here's a plot that shows some people's estimates, which, again, <laughs> that just guesses. Right? So the black line just shows you how far out into the haystack we would be able to search using an instrument like the Allen Telescope Array. And then these numbers, N, are just these guesses as to how many needles are there. So on the left, you get Carl Sagan's guess. He figured there were like a couple of million societies out there broadcasting signals that are going through your bodies while you suffer through this talk. If he's right, then we should find ET very soon, within a few years. Isaac Asimov figured there were 670,000 broadcasting civilizations in the galaxy. Being smarter than these other guys, he could do this to two decimal places. But whatever. I, if, if Asimov is right, then it takes till 2020. Frank Drake himself figures 10,000, in which case it takes till 2030. All these numbers are the same number. The bottom line here is that if this idea has merit, if searching for radio signals or flashing lights is the way to find ET, then this is not going to be something like building those cathedrals in Europe. This is an experiment that's going to succeed in your generation. Right? It's either going to succeed very quickly or there's just something wrong. Right? There, there could be a lot of things wrong. We could be missing important physics or missing money. I mean, there's a lot of ways it could fail. But I will bet you all a cup of Starbucks that we'll find ET within two dozen years. So here's the deal for you. Either two dozen years from now, you open up your paper. Well, you won't do that. You open up your browser and, you know, you read signal found coming from a few hundred light years away, or you get a cup of coffee. That's it. Uh, do I have anything else here? Let me just say, follow up a little bit on this business of this, this proposal, does it matter what we imagine ET to be like? Because I mentioned that without following up on the punchline. I told you that in the case of Mars or finding life in the solar system, it does matter how you picture ET. Okay. Now, how do we picture ET in the SETI business? Well, there's a whole list of Attributes, to begin with, we assume it's carbon-based life forms. They always have on uh, Star Trek, carbon-based life forms, Captain. And, and that's because carbon has these four covalent bonds. It likes to be friendly with other atoms. It hooks up with them and all that sort of thing. Uh, and there is a lot of carbon around, right? But actually, if you dig in the dirt around this building, you find carbon, but you find more silicon. There's more silicon. And silicon is right underneath carbon in the periodic table. So what about silicon-based life? Right? You, you do find it in uh, science fiction. But silicon, is, it's a bigger atom, so it's not as good at making these molecules as carbon is. I'll give you an example. You, you take carbon, you add two oxygen atoms to it, and you get carbon dioxide, which is you know, a useful gas for heating up the planet, but also for plants. If you add two oxygen to silicon, you get silicon dioxide, which is quartz. It's sand. Right? Not biologically very interesting. Try a quartz sandwich today. Okay. Underneath that, germanium, germanium-based life. Maybe we don't see it. Tin, tin-based life. Maybe in the Wizard of Oz. I don't know. Okay. So, you know, we assume carbon-based life. We assume a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, these, these sorts of things. Fundamentally, we just assume that the aliens are sort of like us. And so, when it comes to our best places to look for life, we look for those Earth-like worlds that Kepler is, we hope, going to find. Okay. Well, you can't argue very hard about that because, after all, 
That's the one example we have of intelligent life, so why not you know, just take advantage of the fact we know something? Uh, Hollywood's views of aliens don't help very much. Hollywood usually has only two kinds of aliens, good ones and bad ones. And the bad ones look like things you, you find kind of repulsive, like arthropods and so forth, uh, giant insects and stuff, or the lazy god aliens of television where the budgets are smaller. These guys, <laughs> these guys look like you, right? I mean, there's nobody here on the screen that... Uh, you know, couldn't be fixed by a good plastic surgeon, in my opinion. If, if one of these guys actually moved in next door, you know, you'd probably, it would be the subject of conversation, no doubt. But eventually, you'd get around to inviting them over for dinner, right? I mean, they're not that different. But, you know, but I, all this could be wrong, and this is why I think it's all wrong. Here's your ISO standard, alien. Okay. Um, I mean, all, all these assumptions that they're on a world like ours because they're made like we are, some sort of biological being. Um, what is it that we're really looking for? We're looking for intelligence. Okay. I mean, what are they going to be like? Intelligence. They've got to be able to build a radio transmitter. This is your intelligence. You have a, you know, a three-pound brain. I don't know how many of you weighed your brain this morning. It's roughly three pounds. It runs at roughly 25 watts. So, uh, and that, by the way, doesn't matter whether you're thinking or you're just zoned out like all the guys are. If, you, if you're you know, zoned out, you're still running at 25 watts. Your, your intelligence runs at the power of a fridge light. Okay. I always knew that about my brother, but it's... Okay. Uh, your entire body, by the way, runs at about 75 or 100 watts. So one-third of all the calories you get at lunch today are going just to keep your little brain warm. 2% of your body weight takes all that energy. It's very expensive. It's probably why a lot, of, uh, a lot of animals don't have much intelligence. Okay, but here this plot shows you how big your brain has been, or the brains of your ancestors. Three million years ago, our ancestors had a brain that was one pound, Right? And two million years ago, your brain was two pounds. One million years ago, two pounds. Now it's three pounds. That last pound makes a big difference, by the way, because if you have a, 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 a two-pound brain, you're a forest ape. If you have a three-pound brain, you can enroll here. So looking at this plot, you might think, well, gosh, um, this curve just keeps going up, and maybe our descendants will eventually have 10-pound brains, 15-pound brains. I think the women will go on strike. They have trouble giving birth to babies the way they are. But, you know, consider, I mean, you know, there might be evolutionary effects or something. But, I mean, so this suggests that if what you're looking for in the case of E.T. is just, you know, big-headed guys, <laughs> not very big physically because, after all, they, they don't load trucks for a living. They're all sitting around designing websites. So, <laughs> and, and this does not contradict the strategy that we're using for SETI, which is to look for something that's like us. It's just that they have bigger brains. This is the usual assumption. But I think it's all contradicted by the usual curve you see at the Singularity University. And this is Hans Moravec's curve, but you know, it's basically Kurzweil's idea, too. This, all you've done here is plot the amount of compute power you can buy for $1,000 right? uh, as a function of time. And of course, it's going up. And when this plot was, was made, I guess 1997, for $1,000, you buy the compute power of a spider. Today, 2011, looking at the extrapolation, you buy the compute power of a lizard for $1,000. Might be interesting if you're selling car insurance. Okay, so, and, but, the, but the point here is that by 2020, for $1,000, you will buy the compute power of a human brain. So your laptop in 2020 will have the compute power of a human brain if you have a laptop. Right. Now, I don't think anybody's going to dispute that. That's, that seems to be pretty inevitable. The question is, will you have the software to actually emulate 
artificial intelligence. And if you talk to people in the artificial intelligence biz, most of them say, of course, this is going to happen. There are people who think it will never happen. You'll never be able to build a machine that can go teach you know, high school chemistry or write the great American novel or whatever. But I think they're whistling in the dark. Because if you ask these same people who are skeptical about that, you say, well, could you build an artificial kidney? And they say, well, yeah, of course we do that. Can you build an artificial heart? Sure. Artificial pancreas? I don't know, but it sounds reasonable, right? But if you talk about the organ between your ears, suddenly that's a different deal, right? As if there's some miracle going on in your head. Let me assure you, it's not happening. Okay, so maybe this takes till 2040 or 2050 or 20, who cares? It, may, it takes to, you know, the, the, the next millennium before you actually have artificial intelligence that's as clever as we are. It doesn't matter. All those numbers, again, are the same number. You invent radio, and then within a few centuries, because now you're on the air, within a few centuries you invent your successor. Right, that's what you all are about here, inventing our successors, okay. And you, know, you could say, oh, yeah, but don't worry about that, because we're going to keep up. We're going to put those chips in our brains. You'll be able to surf the net without having to actually use an external device. Sure, we're going to do all that, but that's like putting a four-cylinder engine in a horse, right? I mean, you get a faster horse, but eventually you say, can we get rid of the horse part and just build the Maserati, right? <laughs> so while this is interesting, I don't think it's ever going to be able to keep up. And this little cartoon gives you, you know, I mean, just, this is just a restatement of singularity kind of arguments. On the left, you have the history of a horse, right? 60 million years ago, a horse was the size of a collie dog, and today a horse is the size of a horse. Okay, so that's what, that's what evolution can do in 60 million years. And you know that technology, I mean, I had a personal computer in 1977, had a one megahertz clock rate, eight bit bus and all that. The one I have at home today is, I reckon, 10,000 times more powerful, and that's in 35 years. So there's just no competition. If you actually get artificial intelligence going, we become somewhat irrelevant. I mean, it isn't to say the machines will kill you. I have some goldfish at home. I'm smarter than they are, but I don't wake up in the morning thinking, I'm going to kill those guys. They're too stupid, right? <laughs> it just <laughs> never occurs to me. So, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to make any prognostication here about our future, except to say that if we're going to do this within a few centuries of inventing radio, you can assume they've done it. And the point is, of all this, is that this idea that the aliens might look like this, <laughs> this person right here, um, I think you can forget all that. If we, pick, oops, if we pick up aliens, they won't look like us. In fact, they won't be soft and squishy. They won't be biological. They'll be machines. What's going to be behind the microphone is very likely to be machine intelligence. And that should inform, I think, that should modify where we look for them. Because instead of looking for places where biology might flourish, we should look for places where machine intelligence might flourish. And I'm counting on you to tell me where that might be. Uh, Ray Kurzweil came and gave a talk actually at the SETI Institute a year or two ago. And he said, well, what, the aliens will be like this. There'll be little swarms, microbots swarming around. Um, that could be, could be a problem if they really swarm around. But I'm, I'm not so keen on this idea because I think that if you distribute the intelligence, you really, all you do is slow it down. What you really want is you want that concentrated intelligence all in one spot. And so maybe this is the kind of intelligence that's in the universe. It, could, it doesn't even have to be restricted to planets. Right? You, could, you could do this in the middle of space. You need a little bit of energy. You need a little bit of matter, both of which you can find essentially everywhere in the universe. But there are places where there's a lot more of it, and maybe those are the places we should look. Let me just finish with this slide. This is a picture of some place we ought to look at more often with our uh, SETI experiments. This is an infrared photo, but that bright spot in the middle is the center of our own galaxy. And it's not very nearby. It's 28,000 miles away. But there could be machinery there. 
Because if you're a machine, you're essentially immortal. At least you live for a long time. And if you're immortal, then all trips are the same length. The fact that it takes you a long time to go to the center of the galaxy may not matter because you live forever anyhow. And if you get there, there's a lot more stuff and a lot more energy. When I say a lot, you know, six, eight orders of magnitude more than around here. So maybe that's interesting. Maybe we ought to, you know, look for signals coming from there. Okay, I'm going to end it here, but simply say that I hope you've gotten some idea of the sorts of things that are going on in SETI. It's not a static experiment. It's improving in speed all the time. The total number of people involved is very small. The total number of people involved worldwide in SETI experiments, and it's mostly the United States for cultural reasons that I don't under understand, actually. Uh, but the total number of people worldwide is fewer than the number of people in any given column of this classroom. So it's small, but uh, I encourage you to uh, think about it. Okay, thank you. Maybe I'll take some questions. Okay. Hello, my name is Diego. I'm from Argentina. Um, my question is, what do you think about the limitation in the universe exploration in terms that not even this traveling at the speed of light, it's enough to do it well? Well, I, maybe your, your, your question is um, alluding to this idea that Enrico Fermi had, that the galaxy should be colonized by now, that even if we can't go at the speed of light, we can go fast enough to colonize the galaxy? No. Oh, all right. In, in other words, you're suggesting that physics will limit the, the amount of colonization anybody can do. Yeah, well, that may be. It, it seems rather remarkable that the universe should be set up in such a way that everybody is kept isolated. But the speed of light is not such a bad limitation if all you really want us to do is send the information. Right. And it, 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 2,000 years to get the response? Yeah, no, you're not talking conversation. It's true. I mean, <laughs> some, some of my colleagues want to send messages into space, and some of them have actually done that. Frank Drake actually sent a message to a, a globular cluster, a big ball of stars that's M13. That's about 25,000 light years away. So that'll get there, you know, 24,900 and whatever, 70 years from now. And if the inhabitants of that star cluster deign to reply, it'll be another 25,000 years before we get the response. That's 50,000 years, and then you finally hear from them, you know, please repeat that or something. I don't know. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> whatever. But, but, <clears throat> but within 1,000 light years, there are millions of star systems. So the nearest neighbors could easily be within thousands, a thousand light years. So that means that conversation, yes, it's slow. You know, it, it's, it's so slow, it's tedious, a couple of thousand years. Not entirely impossible. But what I think the, the implication of that is the following. If the aliens are deliberately broadcasting into space, they know about this problem, and they will send you everything at once. It's sort of like talking to Julius Caesar, right? You can't. I mean, you can, but your neighbors will think you're crazy, right? But we can listen to Julius Caesar. 2,000 years it took for that message to get to you. The entire Roman Empire took 2,000 years to get to you, but it's still interesting to listen to, and there's a lot of material, right? So there are people who spend their entire lives listening to the Roman Empire, right? So, you know, the same would be true of E.T. I mean, I wrote a little paper 
couple of years ago about what we should broadcast if we were ever to broadcast anything. And, you know, people say, well, we should have these stick figures or we should send them a language in mathematics or send them music or send them that. Yeah, all of that's fine, but I would just send the Google servers. Just send the Google, send it all because it's going to be one way. Somebody pointed out to me, there's a lot of porn on the Google servers. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't think the aliens would care about that, but. Um, my question is, what future technologies do you envision that could revolutionize the way we search for ET? Yeah, what technologies could revolutionize the way we search for ET? A lot of people from Argentina, the entire population of Calafate has come up here. Um, you know, the whole nature of breakthroughs in technology is that you don't see them coming. That's why they're called breakthroughs. I think that technology is fairly easy to predict. If you, I asked this question of people who do SETI, and all they could say is that, well, clearly, the increase in computing speed continues to dominate what happens to SETI research, particularly the development of new semiconductor devices that can look uh, for flashing lights, very short flashing pulses of light over a two-dimensional matrix. That would be a great step forward as a particular technological development. But I think that the more important thing would be things like discovering Earth-like worlds. That would give you some indication of, of a place to look. Beyond that, though, I think if you found new physics that changed the rules of the game, if you found some way to actually communicate faster than light, then everything we're doing now is kind of obsolete. So that could happen. Uh, there's no indication that it's ever going to happen, but, you know, you can't rule it out. Hi, I'm Lucy from England. Um, the Earth's been here for four and a half billion years, but we've only been able to send messages out for the, about the last hundred. So what are the chances that alien life and us are going to be on the same intelligence level at about the same time so we can either converse or pass messages? Yeah, well, that, that's a good point. And that's, that's part of the Drake equation, which I didn't really talk about, but you saw it. Uh, because what he, one, uh, the last term in the Drake equation is how long you stay in a technological state that you're broadcasting. Obviously, we don't know. For us, it's been you know, fewer than 100 years. But how much farther do we go broadcasting light and radio waves into space? And that's conjectural. If you're a pessimist, you figure we're going to wipe ourselves out within 50 years. So that length of time is very small. And that means you're not going to overlap with anybody else because it was too short a time. If you're more optimistic and say, look, we might have thousands, even millions of years to go. I mean, the average length of time that a species survives on Earth is about a million years. Right? So if we can do that, then there's going to be lots and lots of time in which we would have the possibility to be in contact. So that's fundamentally the question. The, the other aspect of the question is, but will we be using radio all that time? And that's hard to say. That, that's the question of, is there some other physics that sort of trumps radio? Uh, because you say, well, yeah, but radio is an old technology. Sure, so is the wheel. You use it every day. Right? Probably we will always use it. So those are the unknowns. Much, Seth. <clears throat>